Psalm 40, page 468. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray real quick. Father, as we sit and listen and consider your words to us today, I ask that you would give us open ears as you gave David. I ask that you would help us um, to see the true and better David, your son Jesus, in these words and how he's fulfilled them. God, I ask that you would be Kevin's strength, um, be his comfort, be his rock, um, speak to us today, God. I, I know that you want to, that you are near. And so help us to feel and see your nearness. Help us to hear from you. Help Kevin to hear from you, even as he talks. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen. Well, I know it's um, a big deal for Seth and for me and for so many people here to have Tyler back up here again. Love you, brother. Yeah, he. Um, if you weren't here um, several months ago, um, we brought him up front and prayed for him because he was dealing with this really serious issue with his inner ear that was um, putting him on his back so much of the time. And so it's awesome to have him up here leading. And next time, um, you know, it'll be cool to have Stephanie up here again. And then because they, they, they love serving together in that way. Um, praise the Lord. 
Um, last week in our episode of Kevin talking about Amy reacting to him watching Christmas movies, um, I mentioned watching Die Hard for the first time and my wife being surprised at just how jumpy I was. But I also remember the first time that she and I watched Home Alone together, which is, of course, my all-time favorite Christmas movie. She was just amused by how much I was laughing. I'm, I'm not much of a giggler, but I was acting like a little kid then as I saw little Kevin McAllister, you know, maybe there's that namesake connection there, but how he was humiliating those, those bungling burglars, Harry and Marv. It's become this, this family tradition of ours where we decorate our Christmas tree, grab some high chai, and watch Home Alone each year, and it's one that I love. It's easy in this life to feel like little Kevin, right? Left all alone at home, enemies coming at us from every side, having to fend them all off by ourselves. Not fun. I think King David, the author of this psalm, no doubt would have said amen to that feeling because here in Psalm 40, we see the king shouting out in the present, come back soon and help me, Lord. But at the same time, we also hear him recalling how God had so faithfully rescued him in the past. I asked Aaron to plan our Advent sermons this year, and when I originally saw this passage he'd assigned, I didn't know what to think. But the more I got into it, the more it did sound like a Christmas song to me, and an Advent song for sure, because the Lord is not going to leave us alone. He will come back and rescue us as promised. Maybe you've never been in a church that talks about Advent, but the term refers to the coming of Christ. And it's a season that has traditionally been characterized by longing. Last week, we saw Zechariah's longing for a savior. Uh, Next week, we'll hear Mary crying out for the same. And there's this grieving that we can relate to over what we experience in the world. And there's this longing for Jesus to come and make things right. But as I mentioned last week, where we stand on the other side of his life and death It's his second advent, the coming return that we long for, but we can also look back at his first coming to earth, and we can be reminded and we can be encouraged to keep on keeping on, and that's exactly what I think we see going on here in Psalm 40. The Psalms give us songs for all seasons. They've long been the songs of God's people, the prayer book, the hymn book of the church, The great church father Athanasius once said this about the Psalms, whatever your particular need or trouble from the same book, you can select a form of words to fit it. The Psalms were given to us to provide a language for our prayers. They were given to us to teach us to pray. And there are many genres within give voice to the full range of human experience. They're God's gracious gift to us. Here in this psalm, I'd argue that we see a combination of a couple of those genres. We see both thanksgiving and lament. Thanking God for what he's done in the past and lamenting to him about what's going on in the present. And here's the key that I'll I'll mention several times this morning. The remembering and the thanking can even be a pathway whereby we can get through the wailing and lamenting. And that's in part a big thing I think God wants us to hear together today. 
But I think it even goes further and goes deeper than that. Now, this sounds more overwhelming than I think it will be, but I'm actually gonna take four swipes through this psalm. Hopefully it'll demonstrate how we can go about reading this book, but even more, how can we can apply these words throughout the Psalms to the deepest aspects of our lives. First, let's think about King David and the 40th Psalm. Scholars aren't exactly sure what trials David is speaking about here, but he faced a bunch, right? From the time he was chosen to be king, even to the challenges when he took the throne. But some think, and have argued, that given where it's found in the book, that these prayers might have happened even in this transition between David running for his life from Saul and him beginning to settle in to his reign. I want you to notice four things going on in this psalm. Four things. We see David first here remembering and thanking God for how he's rescued him in the past. So right off the bat, in verses one through three, we see the king crying out to God and the Lord rescuing him from the pit. God puts him in this secure place and it results in songs of praise. New songs, in fact, are given to David. No doubt many that are here in this book. He can't contain himself because God has been so good to him. Down at verse five, he praises the Lord for his works and his plans. He says, no one, none can compare with you. King David cries. Next, we see him take all this public. We see him second, telling far and wide all that God has done. He wants to tell the world and all the people of God. He says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust in verse four. Not those who follow proud men who run after false gods, but those who trust in the Lord, they're blessed. In verse five, he expresses his desire to tell of all of God's works. In verses nine and 10, David says that he's done exactly that. He's proclaimed God's salvation among God's people. He's not restrained his lips. He hasn't hidden his deliverance within his heart. He hasn't concealed his steadfast love or his faithfulness. He's told anyone who would listen, among Israel, among the nations, that God is great and that God is good. And David here meditates on all the Lord has done for him. It's his desire, says verse three, that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And in verse 16, it's his passion that all would seek after God and rejoice. That more and more would love his salvation and continually sing out, great is the Lord. But David's troubles, they're, they're not over, right? We hear him third, call out to God for help as he struggles in the present. In the second half of the psalm, he's clearly in another crisis, right? In verse 11, the king reminds himself, he's preaching to himself, that God's mercy and his steadfast love and faithfulness, they would always be with him. And he needs the reminder because evil is chasing after him again. We see this in verse 12 and in verse 14. But evil is also bursting out of him again. It's not just them, it's him too, but David is pleading out to God. He laments his situation. In verse 13, he asks God to deliver and help him. In verse 14, he begs God to leave his enemies ashamed 
And David proclaims and pleads in verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So the king of Judah begs the king of the earth, help me now, please, I'm dying here. But you probably noticed I I skipped over some words, the ones there in verses six through eight. I want to read those again. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. King David here, fourth, expresses his commitment to the Lord. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, those words might sound familiar because back in the day, Israel had asked for a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them and have someone that would rule over them besides God was the implication of that. So the Lord gives them Saul the Lord gives them someone who had a heart like theirs. Back in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul had won this big battle. He triumphed over this evil nation, Amalek, and instead of wiping them all out and doing what God had directed, instead of being this means of executing judgment on behalf of the Lord, Saul had his own plans. He decides, hey, I'm gonna hold back some of the livestock, So I can offer sacrifices to the Lord, but that's not what God told him, and the Lord's not pleased. And so he sends his guy Samuel, the prophet, to go tell him exactly what he thinks. And that's what we hear in verses 22 and 23 of 1 Samuel 15. Listen to them. Samuel goes and he says, has the the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now God does remove Saul from the throne and soon David is anointed and would take his place. But there in Psalm 40, verse six, the King David alludes to those words and he basically says, I know it's not the sacrifices that you really want. You want my heart. You've heard my cries. David says, I stand here with open ear. I wanna hear from you. David says, you delight in my obedience. He says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. So David here expresses his commitment to the Lord. God has been so good to him. He desires to give the Lord his heart and he wants to walk before him in obedience and with thanksgiving for all his days. David finishes Psalm 40, similar to how it starts. There in verse 17, he remembers the Lord's commitment to him, but he cries out, in his present trial with desperation for the Lord to do it again, to help him now. That's what King David shows us here in Psalm number 40. Well, I wanna spend some time and think about what this all might mean for us. Four things that correspond to what we've just seen. And here's the first exhortation I wanna give you this morning. You probably know where this is going. First, remember Chorus and give thanks 
for what God has done for us in the past. Karis, hasn't God been good? Hasn't he been faithful to us? If we're believers, we can point back to the day of our salvation when he pulled us out of the pit. And there are countless ways that he has rescued us from trouble, right? And this is essential for us to hold on to faith as we walk in the present. Karis, we have to remind ourselves, we have to preach to ourselves of who he is and what he's done. Because there are so many voices out there. There's so many lies we can believe, right? They're coming at us all the time and we have to fend them off for our joy, for our survival. And there's one main strategy for drowning them out. I love the way the great Martin Lloyd-Jones once explained it. We've read this here before. He writes, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So again, this goes directly against the grain of what everybody tells us to do today. He says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, et cetera. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Again, I say, Karis, hasn't God been good? Hasn't he been faithful in the past? We have to remind ourselves of that. We have to pull out our journals and recall where we've been and what we've seen. We have to remind ourselves of what is true, especially when everything seems dark and we can't see any way out. And we have to turn it into thanksgiving. Karis, we should be thankful people. We should be a singing people, singing at how great God is and all he's done for us. I so much want our worship here, our singing here, to be characterized by more and more joy and more and more exuberance in what the Lord has done. But how can we also not share this? Second, we need to testify of those works in the church and before the world. We need to remind each other, this is why we need to be a part of a church, why we need to be a member of a church, so that we can hear other people preach to us and remind us. Here's another quote that may be familiar to you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. The Lord can use you and I to build up the family around us. We can hear how someone somehow got through chemotherapy or were brought out of deep and dark addiction 
are stories of conversion, our testimonies of growth, stories of God's grace in our lives. We can praise the Lord for those things, but we can also build up our brothers and sisters by sharing with one another what the Lord has done. And we have to humble ourselves and we have to recognize just how deeply our hearts need that. We need God's word, yes, we have to start there, we have to dig in there, but we need to hear God's word through others all the time. When we can't preach to ourselves, our family preaching to us, when we begin to forget, we get this reminder from a friend. And we also need to take this out into the streets, right? David here wants everyone to hear, and that should be our heart as well. As we go out in our city, right, to our places of work, to the classrooms that we we study in. We want to share God's story of what he's doing in Jesus, how he's going to redeem this broken world, but we also get to share our stories. We can talk about our God and what he's done. We can tell them how he's working in our lives. So, Karis, I say, let us go tell it on a mountain, How can we not share this? Third, cry out to him and trust him as you struggle in the present. Can't we still trust him, Karis, even in those hard moments? I tell you, with the psalmist, lament, weep and mourn, call out for help, ask him to work in what you're going through right now. David models this for us. God gives us permission to do this. He encourages us to do this. He can handle our questions. He can stomach our rants. He wants to hear us. And let me tell you, he loves to respond to our prayers. New crises we face are new chances for us to grow in faith. Tell him about your struggles. Talk to him about your enemies. Ask God to bring you justice. Beg him to give you peace in your life. Peace in the world. Peace in what you're going through. Lament, plead, petition him for grace today. Pour out your pain at his feet. As we ponder what he's done for us before, won't that help us believe that he'll do it again? The reminding of God's activity back then can be a means of our enduring in our circumstances right now. Can't we trust him, Karis, still? But you might say this, um, God didn't save my mom. I still don't have a job. He hasn't heard my prayers. You're telling me I should trust? Well, I would say, gently, Try to go back and count your blessings again because so often we don't see very clearly when our eyes are full of tears. But the reality is that life in a fallen world can be very, very hard and God never promises us an easy life. But he does say that one day he'll make all things right. So when we don't seem to get much encouragement from the past, We need to turn our eyes to the future and trust what he'll one day do. Fourth then, we have to open and offer our hearts to him as we seek to obey. 
can't we trust him with our hearts, Karis? This goes back to verses six through eight. God doesn't need our help, in case you didn't know that. He isn't just trying to give us busy work to do. He wants us. He wants all of us. He wants our hearts. Think about some of the characters we've seen as we've gone through the book of Matthew, uh, the, a big group, you know, kind of the people we see as the enemies, the Pharisees. So they are there trying their hardest to do all the right things, and they're trying to teach the people all these things that they should avoid. But soon we're going to see down the road in chapter 15, Jesus is going to tell them some hard words, quoting Isaiah the prophet. He says, Matthew 15, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hear me, Chorus. He doesn't just want us to obey. He wants us to delight in his will. He wants us to cherish his words in our hearts. He isn't looking for people who just do their duty. He wants his children to serve him out of love. So I say, won't we give him our hearts, Chorus? Here's something else to think about. Could it maybe be that these trials are one thing that God uses to make our hearts pure? Yeah, we can fight against them for sure. We can convince ourselves that we're just fine. We can use them as some way to to prove we're, we're awesome. But instead, they should humble us, right? They should cultivate in us dependence. They should direct our hearts to the Lord. They're a means God gets us to trust and to have hearts that are focused on him. Won't we give him our hearts and won't we open ourselves to even whatever would get us there to maturity, to love for him? Okay, let's turn to, take, to think about this passage from another, I think, deeper angle. So I want you to think of the Psalms this psalm, like kind of like a spiral, where it twists and goes downward. And let's think about the son of David in Psalm 40 here. So all of God's word, and definitely the psalms, point ahead to Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. The psalms, as I said earlier, they're meant to be the songs of God's people, but even more, they're meant to be the songs of God's son. When we walk through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you may remember us hearing Jesus say that he had come to fulfill the Old Testament, Matthew 5, 17. In Luke 24, 44, after his resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. So it all points ahead to him, and definitely these verses. With that, I want you to head with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. So this is a little bit of a long passage, but I feel like I need to read it all. So Hebrews 10, starting verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered once, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So did you catch verses five through seven? They're taken right out of Psalms chapter 40 and they're telling us that all those words back then were all about Jesus. So think about this. No one, no human, including David, has had a heart that was pure. Yeah, he's called a man after God's heart, but he sinned, right, in some really egregious ways. Only the son of David has trusted God completely. He trusted and obeyed his father and in the worst of trials, and then he gave his life as the greatest gift of all. Jesus the king, the son of David, is two things that we see here um, in Psalm 40. He's our representative. The king represents the people. That's the way it is. That's the way it was. If things are bad for him, they're bad for the nation. If he's beating his enemies, then they are too. That was true for David. That was true for Israel. This is true for the son of David and us as well. He remained faithful to his father. If we trust him, we're in union with Jesus and his perfect life is now also ours by faith but that's not all. It also means that when he was drawn out of the pit and out of the bog, when he triumphed over death and when he ran out of the grave, we did too. And with him, we'll live forever. He's our representative. But of course, the main thing that we get out of there from Hebrews through Psalm 40 is he's our sacrifice. The author of Hebrews inspired by the Spirit, is telling us that those sacrifices back then, that they were reaching ahead to Christ's perfect, forever, final offering. And that's what we're meant to embrace. That's what should turn our hearts to praise, his cross. He made atonement for us. That's what all those other offerings were pointing toward, and only that of this king, who's also a suffering servant, can satisfy. He's our sacrifice. 
With that in mind, let's go a little deeper to what it might mean for us. Look back to verses six through eight of Psalm 40. Um, In case you didn't know this, we'll never trust our Lord enough and our little offerings are not gonna get us very far. Our hearts in this world, even as believers, are torn and we find ourselves too much of the time delighting in other things. And our efforts to impress God, they really end up pushing us away from him. We not only have to repent of our deeds that are bad, but also our good deeds that are done for all the wrong reasons. We often give God gifts and we feel good about ourselves. But maybe you've heard this quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, where he writes, he says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it's really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's also very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. So it's all God's anyway. We're just giving him what is his. But beyond that, we so often just make it all about us. So Christmas is upon us. We're gonna start um, giving gifts to our friends and loved ones. Um, a- Amy always says that we're not supposed to give each other gifts. Um, we, you know, we have some kind of big family thing that we try to do, but we always break that rule. I always know that she is going to. But if you walk around our, our house, you're gonna see a number of things that I've unwrapped over the years. And here's an example. Sitting on the top of my dresser in our bedroom is, no joke, a Michael Jackson doll right? Now, I was, I grew up on the King of Pop. Like, I remember when Thriller was released, and I was pretty thrilled about it. I remember, yeah, the the first Thriller video. Yeah, I like Michael Jackson. Put me in karaoke, put on Beat It. You know, some of you know how that goes. It goes great. But I can guarantee that that Michael Jackson doll was never, ever on my Amazon wish list, right? I joke with Amy that she gives me gifts for herself all the time, right? It's, it's much like if on Christmas morning she opens up this gadget for a guitar, right? It's really for me. But that's what we do so often when we present our gifts to the Lord, at least when we're trying to perform and somehow earn his favor. favor we're really giving them to us to make ourselves feel better to convince ourselves that we're measuring up, maybe so we can compare ourselves to our neighbor. That's what we're doing with our works apart from his grace. We're giving them to ourselves. And again, we're digging ourselves in a bigger hole. He doesn't want us to go out and try to earn our way with him. He wants us to do works of love flowing from grateful hearts. Right? I don't want my kids to feel like they need to go buy me a present to try to get me to like them. No, I love them. I want them, you know, yeah, I want them to give me presents. <laughs> no, but because they love me. Karis, we have nothing to prove 
We have no one to impress if we're in Jesus. The Lord wants us to receive the gift of his son, his life and death, his sacrifice for us, and then live a life of praise for it. Live lives of worship. If we grasp this, really hold on to this gift, it'll change everything. Well, the more I've thought about it, I agree with some that have actually called Psalm 40 a song of the incarnation. If you think about it, Jesus says, behold, I have come. He left heaven for earth. He humbled himself. And he said to his father, I delight to do your will, O God. He sought to obey him. He emptied himself. He prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours. He came in the cradle. He got up on the cross. One day he'll take up his crown and everything, and this includes we who believe, will be healed, made right. He walked through suffering all the way to glory, and that's our promise as well if we trust him. There'll be suffering, but there's glory ahead. And it's that hope, most of all, that will keep us going in faith. Carus, we must fight to remember what God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ so that we can hang on in the present and forge ahead into the future as we serve him in love and tell it to the world. So again, the more I read this, it, it seems more like a Christmas song. It points ahead to this king who came to save and it really feels like an Advent song. It fits with that because here in this world we're, we're longing for his help We're praising him for the ways he's rescued us before and that facilitates remembering, it cultivates trusting. Psalm 40 again reminds us to forge forward in faith. Before I launched into prep, um, I reached out to Bobby, who's our deacon in music, piano wizard, and I said to him, hey man, you know, there's this really cool version of this psalm from you too. Like, have you heard it? We should totally do that, man. And he told me, he said, that's exactly what a middle-aged Acts 29 pastor is supposed to say, right? (laughs) Well, unless Tyler has some surprises, we're not going to do it. Um, And in case you didn't know, it's good for me to have people that I submit to as well. You know, I think you'll you'll be, you should be glad of that. But anyway, um, Bono, the the band's lead singer, um, he talks in this article about how that song called 40 ended up sneaking its way into their their war album and it became this anthem that that crowds literally of hundreds of thousands of people would sing out at their shows. And he writes this. He says, Psalm 40 is interesting in that it suggests a time in which grace will replace karma and love replace the very strict laws of Moses, i.e. fulfilled them. I love that thought. David, who committed some of the most selfish as well as selfless acts, was depending on it. That the scriptures are brimful of hustlers, murderers, cowards, adulterers, and mercenaries used to shock me. Now it's a source of great comfort. The tune um, also snags this line that appears in multiple other psalms, and it turns it into this song of all-out lament. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long? It becomes this song of longing, asking God to return and to make everything right. More recently, I was listening to this interview with him and Mike Cosper. Mike Cosper is a former pastor that I know that works for Christianity Today. 
And he brings up um, to Bono in the interview how U2, they, they blew up in the, the post-punk era when vulnerable, sincere music was what everyone wanted and expected. But Cosper notes, he says that their music, their lyrics, um, and I'd say probably because of their Christian heritage, he, quote, read less like despair and more like lament, and underneath lament, there's always a certain kind of hope. So Cosper said that punk was all about rebellion, but that hope, in fact, can be a kind of rebellion itself. Cosper said hope itself was a rebellious act in that time. I think it still is today. Bono agreed, and he responded with these words that I love. Under lament often lurks hope. The grief becomes kind of an invocation to be filled, and the emptiness is this prayer to be filled. Punk rock prayers, yeah, maybe that's what they were. Carlos, I want you to think of Psalm 40 in that way. It's kind of like a punk rock prayer that looks around with grief, but cries out in hope. It looks ahead to when Christ returns and pleads with God to make it come sooner and faster. It looks back to his first coming, trusting that God is good and keeps his promises. Friends, bolstered, like song, bolstered by songs like this, we can live life in rebellion against all the cynicism and despair around us. We can live lives of faith. Let's pray. God, I, I just pray for me and for everyone here, Father, that um, you would um, bring our hearts and minds to recall and rejoice in where we've come from by your grace. Lord, that we would um, remember all the many ways that you have pulled us out of pit after pit, um, out of quicksand. <laughs> Lord, you've been so good to us and I pray, Lord, that that would um, remind us and that would just strengthen us um, because around every bend, there's gonna be another trial. And Lord, we wanna honor you there. We want to lean into you there and we wanna glorify your son. And, and Father, I pray that you would just chip away, that you would demolish this idea that um, we can be good enough to please you, um, that we can work hard enough or repent enough, whatever it would be, um, Pull us toward the glory of your son. Um, put us on our faces before him. Um, allow us to worship him and his grace. And um, I just pray that that would um, glow off of us, that would reverberate around us, Father. Um, work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.